The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. You know SunGrow as a leading inverter maker for solar and storage solutions around the world, but they are much more than that. They are meeting the growing calls for deep decarbonization by decarbonizing their own business and working with the world's biggest companies to power their operations with solar. SunGrow has delivered more than 10 gigawatts of inverters to the Americas alone and 120 gigawatts in total across the globe. Learn more about SunGrow's product line and cutting-edge R&D at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by C-Power. You're trying to educate yourself on where the energy market is going. Listen to this podcast, but also go to the webinar series from C-Power. If you are an energy management professional, you've got control of energy spend at a company, you've got to go to this webinar series. They're hour-long discussions and presentations featuring market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to lower energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals, all important during these tumultuous times. Visit the cpowerway.com slash 2021 to register today or follow the link in the show notes. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. It was hard to keep up with the destruction of the Trump era, and it's already getting hard to keep up with the rebuilding. This week brought a series of actions on climate change from the Biden White House that are building a framework for the climate economy. Sam Ricketts, a prominent climate policy advisor, told the LA Times, this is the most ambitious climate platform put forward by an American president. It's mobilizing the entirety of the federal government in an unprecedented way. Every agency is now a climate agency. We'll sort through it. Then, last week, we covered distributed energy modeling. Now we get to the practice. How do we rebuild markets to accommodate a ton of small-scale resources? They're doing it in the UK. We've lagged in the US. We'll compare. And last, Elon Musk says he'll give $100 million to carbon capture tech that shows promise. He can't run those rockets on electricity. Will he get his carbon-neutral jet fuel? And will it change the market for CCS? The gang's here with me. Catherine Hamilton is co-founder of 38 North Solutions, and she's in Arlington, Virginia, as usual. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Show me what is there in front of you. I got a peek of a bunch of papers. What am I seeing there? It's just my notes. I cannot keep everything in my head. It starts falling out the back. And so uh, whatever falls out the back is on my floor and I read it. (laughs) It's called research. (laughs) It looks like one of those boards you see when detectives are trying to solve a murder scene and they're making all these connections. Uh, (laughs) Catherine is the most thoroughly researched of all of us. Jigger Shah is the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's in Bethesda, Maryland. Hi, Jigger. Hi. Why are you not commenting on all my notes? <laughs> I don't see any notes aside from the the art that your child has made on his bunk bed behind you. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's, a, it's all on my hand. They're all like little written <laughs> notes in my hand. Uh, okay. Well, let's go to the flurry of news that's happening right now in Washington. President Biden is staffing his government very quickly. And by all accounts, we've never seen a team of climate experts assembled in power centers like this. At the top of the government, we now have a national climate advisor, a special envoy on climate change, a special assistant to the president for climate policy, a chief of the Office of Domestic Climate Policy, and a senior advisor for climate policy and innovation. And then there's a wide range of hires focused on cementing racial and economic justice into the plans that these people will carry out. So what are they going to accomplish? What are they going to try to accomplish? And how will this team be different from the Obama years? 
To answer that, I think we'll start with the executive orders. Wednesday was Climate Day at the White House. It was a deluge of actions on government purchases of clean energy and EVs, on national security and climate risk, on environmental justice, on building back scientific expertise. Biden did so much, he basically stopped short of just declaring a national emergency. Catherine, what happened this week? Give us a rundown of the, all this activity. Well, first of all, every day is Climate Day. So that's awesome. It's a real whole of government approach, which is what we predicted was going to happen. And I'm glad it's coming true. So just the big numbers are that he said he wants a carbon free power sector by 2035 and a net zero economy by 2050. So those are the big numbers. And just to run down a few of the things, and this is building on what he already did to get back into Paris and to immediately review some of those rollbacks of standards that he did right when he first came in the day, the inauguration day. So this is, you know, he's done a presidential memorandum on scientific integrity to protect scientists from political interference, which is really important. He has reinstated PCAST, as Jigger and I used to call it, the President's Council on Advisors on Science and Technology, which is really important. And then on the executive order side, they've really made climate crisis part of U.S. foreign policy and national security. They're going to lead the Leaders Climate Summit on Earth Day and hold a major economies forum and really focus on climate in those. In the taking a whole of government approach, they're going to, in addition to having all these advisors, across 21 federal agencies and departments, they're going to hold all of them accountable to climate based on their missions. They're going to leverage the federal government's footprint and buying power. So making sure that the federal government itself procures carbon-free electricity, you know, zero emission vehicles, and creates union jobs and stimulates clean energy industries. So a lot of this is about made in America, by American, including project labor agreements, which is a whole nother issue, but I think is really interesting for the federal government. They're going to develop a plan to increase resilience based on climate change, which is important. I mean, we've done resilience in the past, but not so much about climate. Um, the Secretary of Interior is pausing on any new oil and gas leases um, or offshore waters. He's also said they want to double renewable energy production from offshore wind by 2030. That's a big number. And rebuilding infrastructure for a sustainable economy, making sure that any infrastructure that the government builds is sustainable and reduces climate pollution. Um, one of the in more interesting pieces, I think, is advancing conservation, agriculture, and reforestation. So conserving at least 30% of our lands and oceans by 2030, creating a civilian climate core, which we've talked about before, which is a really cool idea, and getting input from all these farmers and ranchers and other stakeholders and how to do this and what they need and what would be helpful to them. Um, they want to revitalize energy communities like coal communities, power plant communities, and really focus on economic revitalization, um, creating jobs, but also like looking at abandoned infrastructure and what they can do about that to clean it up and you know actually cause economic redevelopment there. Um, and then there's a big, huge piece on environmental justice. So basically, they're saying environmental justice is part of the mission of every single agency. They want to make sure that 40% of any benefits of relevant federal investments go to disadvantaged communities. And they have, they're they going to have a tracking system, EJ Screen, to screen for those communities. And then Justice 40 Initiative, which is going to really track it and provide an environmental justice scorecard. So these are big things. They're trying to do a lot, but they're organizing the entire federal government around them. 
two reactions to this. One is when all these announcements came out uh, in the days after taking office and this Wednesday, I started to feel the pressure of the the Trump years lift a little bit. It was so wonderful to have a, a series of, of good news stories on this front. The other is just this underscores how horribly inept the Trump administration was. There is this long running and very tired joke about every week being infrastructure week. The Trump administration came in talking about how it was going to rebuild infrastructure and it did absolutely nothing, couldn't get out of its own way. And within days, obviously, it will take a lot of effort to build what the Biden team is talking about, but they have issued a, this wide reaching uh, series of orders that will inevitably impact infrastructure in a pretty major way and hopefully hire a lot of people. And you, you can quickly mobilize the power of the government if you know what you're doing. It really shows us how incompetent and unserious the Trump administration was. Jigger, Catherine just went down a major list what stands out to you as most consequential? You're a deployment guy. You've been talking about uh, government procurement. Does does the EVs and clean energy procurement piece stand out to you? Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, I view that list from the lens of clean energy entrepreneurs, right? Because fundamentally, I don't see how we get from here to there, right? Let's call it $200 billion of climate solutions getting out the door, in 2020 with like, you know, moving to, let's say a trillion dollars of climate solutions per year, depending on whose model you're using around what we need to achieve to be able to uh, do our part around decarbonization by 2035 of the electricity grid and then 2050 for the whole economy. And so the question really for me is what activities are the government uh, engaged in that inspires more risk-taking from clean energy entrepreneurs, right? Because remember, they have to go to their local county officials and city officials who all start signed the We Are Still In pledge, but haven't done anything and, and try to convince them to actually do something, right? Buy electric buses, like put solar on roofs, like actually like do energy efficiency in buildings. And the, the government procurement piece was the most consequential thing for me because by definition, the Obama administration found it too hard to accomplish any of it. Right. By definition, they actually put out all these reports in 2010, 2011 around what every agency could do to decarbonize. Right. They demanded those reports and then received them. But then the implementation of it was lacking because it's hard. Right. I mean, it's like it takes a series of 47 steps to actually get it into a contract that someone then can fund. And if some other priority gets in the way, well, then all 47 steps are not completed. And that is happening at you know, the university president level, the mayor level, the governor level, people are not serious about how much red tape there is to getting things deployed. And I think the, the Biden administration is signaling that with all of these people, with all of these fancy titles, that they are going to make sure that they are recording, like how much progress is being made in every single agency. And if they're not making sufficient progress, that they are going to have a phone call with them about why they're not making enough progress and say, hey, please make more progress. So that part stood out to me in a way that was public, where they've made this big public goal. And they're expecting us all, I'm assuming, to hold them accountable to that. Yeah, it like definitely created a signal that there is going to be a huge market with the federal government. But man, Jigger, it's like crawling across broken glass to get work done. I mean, they have got to make it easier all the way down to the contract officer level to do business with the government because 
uh, there is a lot of backlog of businesses that want to get into this space. Now they're going to have the uh, the pipeline ready. They need to now make it easier to do it. Well, that's exactly right. And and I think that the the big thing that happened, I thought was interesting yesterday was Jeff Tannenbaum released that clean database, which, um, you know, Brian Neckhouse at, at Bloomberg reported on, which actually had 180 specific proposals from, you know, like the rest of the country to create like a to-do list for Biden around, you know, cleaning up the broken glass, right? Like, and so part of this is actually saying, hey, by the way, great big announcement. Here is my small little thing where you have this authority over here. You haven't used it for 10 years. Please use it because I actually have a solution that could get funded out of that authority, right? And so I, I, I look, I think that this is great, right? David Roberts, our good friend, also talked about flooding the zone. Um, and I think he did. I think Biden absolutely flooded the zone with all the proposals, all the stuff. And people are now going through it and saying, how am I going to hold the Biden administration accountable to making sure that these things really get implemented so that it actually helps communities, it helps infrastructure, it helps entrepreneurs? Catherine, when we look back years from now on the set of decisions that are playing out, what do you think will be the most consequential? So I think if, if we look back on our economy and the climate, I think the financial market is going to be huge. So Biden has chosen someone at the Federal Reserve in charge of assessing the implications of climate change on the financial system for a supervision climate committee. And that has just been starting to percolate. They did their first report last year. It's going to really amp up in the coming years. And I think connecting the economy and financial markets to climate policy is going to be huge. Yeah, Jigger, when the Fed is infusing climate risk assessments into monetary policy, what does that mean? What will that look like? Well, I certainly think that we've already started to see it, right? So whether it's the drop in stock price by X, from ExxonMobil, right? Because people are saying that they don't think that those investments that they're making will stand up to you know, sort of the future of investing from a climate perspective, right? The ability to pump that oil out of the ground or the ability to do it cost effectively. But it also um, hasn't yet permeated, but I think will in the next four years, um, real estate prices, right? There are a lot of people who own homes in very vulnerable places. And as um, they get flooded out for the fourth time in a row, um, you know, folks are going to say, I don't know if I'm going to pay full price for that house. And for a lot of people who've basically sunk their entire life savings into a home, we're going to have to start figuring out, well, what are we going to do to help those people, right? I mean, are we going to still make them pay back a mortgage on a house that's underwater, literally, unfortunately? Or are we going to like, you know, like give them some sort of debt forgiveness for that, right? I think these, these things are systemic risks to the entire uh, financial sector, right? Our entire financial sector is predicated on the value of real estate. If the value of real estate changes in gargantuan ways, then all of the banks from your local community bank to very large banks are at risk, right? That's what we saw in the 2008 financial crisis. And we will see again. So I think the Federal Reserve is, is being very smart to say that folks are not really serious about reviewing what climate risks they really have in their balance sheets and, you know, in their corporate stock. And they need to be more forthcoming in, you know, the, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, regulations um, about what risks that they see. Catherine, what can we learn about the successes and failures, either in policymaking or in messaging from the Obama era 
that we can apply today? So I think the Obama era did a lot of amazing things. I think the stimulus accomplished a lot. But a big piece of it was that the stories that prevailed were about Tesla's success and Solyndra's failure, when there were a lot of other good things that happened, but the administration did not talk about them the way they should have. So I think that this administration has to do a couple of things. One is they certainly have to track quantitatively what's happening. And can I just say like the Excel workbook for tracking all this stuff is going to have a lot of tabs. Um, And then they also need to qualitatively be able to tell stories. And those stories are what are going to really spark the imagination of people in communities, but also members of Congress and the Senate. It's like those stories are what matter. And I think being able to tell those, I mean, Biden is particularly good at that, but they need to be able to do that for everything that they're managing to accomplish. And they need to be realistic about what they're going to do. <laughs> that You just think about the Department of Energy on all the stovepipes, and there are tons of amazing civil servants who work there and want to get things done every day. But I think they need to be realistic about how do you do cross-cutting initiatives? How do you track those? And then how do you talk about them in a way that really promotes your success? I remember very clearly back in 2011 when Solyndra went bankrupt and the Department of Energy was scrambling to figure out how to message around it. They were terrified of the political blowback. And rather than telling a lot of the successful stories, they were very defensive and a lot of those very good uh, case studies uh, and 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 supportive policies got lost in that conversation. Heck, I still see people talking about Solyndra. It's it's insane. Um, but there's something liberating about today's political environment, as destructive and sad as it is, where the Biden team can just come out and say, like, you know what, this is what we're doing, and they're going to get political blowback no matter what they do, and so they can come out and just tell a very good story. And of course, the connections between a healthy economy and climate action are much clearer, and the Obama team wasn't really talking about it in a very clear way at that time. So I think that's also changed. Well, also, the Department of Energy was led by scientists. I mean, Jennifer Granholm is an amazing politician. I know Jigger loves to say, we need a politician heading up DOE. And he's totally right, because in her hearing yesterday, she had Mike Lee eating out of her hand. I mean, she is really good. And she will be telling the story. So I'm really hopeful because she'll be there. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I'd say is I was listening to Jared Bernstein, who, you know, was a the, the chief economist for Biden when he was vice president and is now on the Council for Economic Affairs, I think CEA. And he basically said that the Obama administration did not allow the economy to run hot because, you know, Summers and Geithner were very concerned about inflation, right? And people were worried about uh, deficits, right? They no longer have that illusion, right? That basically we have had almost no inflation. and And so... They don't see that. And Trump basically proved that you can run the economy hot. And even when you get to full employment at three and a half percent, you don't get inflation, right? We proved in 2009 that we were producing one out of every 20 jobs that the entire U.S. economy was creating was being created by the clean energy sector. One out of every 20, right? And they still didn't lean into that because they were worried about the economy running hot. I don't think they're going to have that problem in the Biden administration. I think if we create 25 million jobs, they will be super excited about us creating 25 million jobs and not worrying about, you know, pulling up on the reins and, oh, I'm too, I'm so worried that, that poor people might finally get jobs and all these things, right? Remember that like part of the reason that we're in this mess 
is that politicians have been schooling white people in particular in rural communities that were decimated by NAFTA and other trade policies that they basically, you know, were going to get retrained and their lives were going to get better. And that 30 years later, after Bill Clinton's first you know, campaign, things have not gotten better for these folks. And they have been susceptible to Trump's messaging and all sorts of other stuff, right? And part of rebuilding our country, which is what we're really doing, right? To be clear, we're rebuilding all of our infrastructure in our country. And it's going to cost trillions of dollars to do that, is we actually can bring jobs back to a lot of these places. We can actually bring meaningful work to a lot of people. So, you know, for me, the most consequential thing that they're doing here is the 40% of money that we call EJ, but to me is actually figuring out how to help those who need the most help across all you know, colors, but also you know, for people who are poor fundamentally, right? And, and I think that that will be looked upon as super consequential and great storytelling. I like that point, Jigger. What the Trump era showed us is that a lot of Americans want a ton of government spending to create jobs. I mean, this idea that climate policy, for example, needs to be based off of this sort of libertarian idea of a carbon tax will solve everything is not how Americans see the role of government in making investments. So, Catherine, how is this landing in Washington? So there are a couple of different venues. One is during the confirmation hearings. So Pete Buttigieg had his hearing and Jennifer Granholm had hers. And they were really good at satisfying the questions that a lot of these senators asked and ensuring them that they were going to create jobs and that they were thinking about their communities. And in fact, they wanted their communities to be part of the solution. Um Well, that doesn't mean that the GOP messaging is going to change. The GOP messaging is, yeah, this is never going to happen. We're never going to let it happen. But, I mean, I think the way you get things done is by really going senator by senator and showing them how things will affect the people who vote for them in their communities. And I do think the way that the Biden administration is getting set up now, it looks like they're putting those processes in place to do just that. Yeah, the one other thing that I think we learned is that basically that this doesn't have to come top down with a cap and trade bill passed by the U.S. Congress. This can actually happen through 100 individual programs with existing authorities that the federal government already has that are in coordination with each other, right? And that's why you have the climate czar and that's why you have all these people to coordinate the impact with these senators in their states. And so I think that that is something the Biden administration has signed up for. Coming up after the break, all the ways electricity markets are not adapting to distributed energy, except in the UK. First, though, a quick word about our sponsors. We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. It's supporting the development of solar and storage around the world, but it's also supporting decarbonization in its own operations. In the past year, SunGrow joined the RE100 with a commitment to switch its global power needs to 100% renewable energy by 2028. And beyond ensuring factories are powered by solar, SunGrow has invested in electric buses to move its staff around facilities in China, earning China's national standard for green factories. SunGrow is expanding its R&D, it's expanding its decarbonization efforts, and it is deploying solar solar and storage projects around the world. Learn more at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Sea Power. It's a confusing time. 
and many of you out there I know control energy spend within organizations. If that is you, you've got to check out CPower's new webinar series that features market-by-market breakdowns to help energy planners make the right decisions to reduce energy costs, earn revenue, help grid reliability, and achieve sustainability goals. This series is going to include guest appearances by leaders in several commercial and industrial sectors, and you can learn more about your industry and how others are maximizing their energy assets around the country. 2021 poses its own set of energy management challenges. Stay on top of them, stay ahead of them with CPower and its 2021 Demand Side Webinar Series. Go to the link in the show notes to learn more. So we have another topic influenced by a listener of ours. This one comes from uh, Randolph Brazier in the UK. He wrote to tell us about advances there in integrating hyper-local distributed energy. And at the regional level, at least, all UK distribution networks are now committed to running these markets. Randolph writes, I listened to your discussions recently on the end-of-year podcast on smart wires and utility regulation. I thought you might be interested in some work we're doing on local flexibility markets in the UK with our distribution networks. These new markets are nascent but growing, super local, and we're not aware of any other country doing this at scale. All the UK distribution networks have now committed to running these markets, effectively procuring flexible solutions instead of building more network traditional wires reinforcement to provide network capacity. We put two gigawatts of local flexibility out to the market last year, so it's a big deal. Yet in California last summer, they had rolling blackouts in part because officials there ignored hundreds of megawatts of distributed generation and demand response. We've had this conversation on this show for years, but we're constantly updating it as policies change and as the technologies march forward because the tech is changing fast and authorities are still not. So let's start with reactions to Randolph's note where it sounds like authorities are adapting. In the UK, he says they have these local flexibility markets. Catherine, what are they? What's the UK doing? Yeah, so they're really trying to engage customers at a much more local level um, to avoid having to build up more infrastructure and investment and avoiding some system balancing costs. This is going to be the new thing in regulatory constructs is flexibility. And I'm a co-chair of the World Economic Forum's uh, Global Future Council on Clean Electrification, and this is what everybody is talking about on the electrification side. Uh, Guidehouse, which used to be Navigant, says that between the UK and Netherlands, in 2020, there was about 167.7 million global transactions in flexibility with about one and a half gigawatts. And by 2029, it'll be closer to 80 gigawatts and 10 billion dollars. So it's the UK, certainly, Netherlands, Japan is piloting it. But also remember, Germany and Europe have really unbundled transmission, distribution and retail. They're like 800 retailers in Europe. So all of these edge of grid technologies, whether it's a software or hardware, are going to eat the lunch of everybody else. And so creating local flexibility markets is going to be really important to making sure that the system is stable for customers. Well, so basically, um, the 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 local distribution sort of operators uh, started putting out uh, pilot RFPs in uh, 2016, and I think the first RFP they put out, they got 300 and you know 81 uh, expressions of interest, which resulted in 100 and 
you know, 20 or so of them being fast-tracked and, you know, like 89 of them, I think, actually receiving real contracts. And we were asked to generate capital to fund some of those contracts in sort of 2017. And, you know, this was things like, um, you know, controlling uh, electric heaters, right, that that folks needed for different industrial processes or whatnot, right? Um, it, it was, you know, things about boilers or things around, elect- now it's electric vehicle charging. I just talked to two clients uh, this week who are, you know, buying up EV chargers throughout Europe because they believe that, that they will more than pay for themselves in these flexibility markets, right? And I think part of this is figuring out exactly what the ramifications of all this are, right? Because like one of the companies, for instance, that's really bold in this area is Octopus Energy, which is one of the retailers in um, the UK. And they've made it very clear to their shareholders that they're not just a trading platform, but they're actually going to own hardware in their customers' homes, right? For two reasons. One is it's stickier, right? So people don't leave them because you can switch retail providers anytime you want. And two is that, you know, they actually get to manage their wholesale power costs better because now, like, if there's a spike in the the prices of power, um, which, for instance, happens in Texas all the time, um, then you can turn off people's uh, loads and save them money um, that way so that they're not using power when things are super tight on the grid, right? And so, so you start to have this, um, this thing, which is not just a theoretical grid flexibility thing. There's actually forward purchase contracts uh, where the grid operator would say, hey, we're going to pay you to provide us as grid flexibility. And if you don't provide it at the time at which we request it, then there's a penalty that's associated with you not providing it as well so that we can rely on it. And what they found is that that's quite a bit cheaper than enhancing the physical infrastructure uh, that's there, right? And so this is what we've been talking about for a long time, but it's now in full action. And you're starting to see the likes of the major oil companies who've bought retail electricity providers to other large retail electricity providers starting to fight over who owns EV chargers and who owns the most flexible appliances that can pay for themselves. Catherine, this is like what you've focused so much of your latter career on. And I wonder why is it so hard here in the U.S.? If this is happening in the U.K., and we've been talking about this in the U.S. for years now, I mean, like the concept has been seriously talked about for a decade and attempted over the last five or six years. Why are we not able to get our act together here? Well, one thing is that the markets are different. And I wouldn't say that the UK market has been without its bumps. <laughs> you know, they they have they have some issues too. Offgem is like their FERC and they've done all kinds of, you know, price controls that have sent the market into a tizzy. And so they've had some issues too. Um, and certainly our markets are so state by state. So you kind of have to look at like, where is it going to work? I mean, Texas is the closest thing you have to, you know, full retail competition in this country. But most of our country isn't set up that way. And so you have to kind of figure out like, what can we do on around the edges? And we've certainly tried a lot of really good experiments like New York Rev was a, has been a really pretty interesting experiment. I mean, it's been going on for a while and it isn't getting to where it 
probably was envisioned to at the beginning, but they have had some pretty good experiments like the Brooklyn Queens demand management program that avoided $1.2 billion in substation costs um, through distributed energy resources, demand response and efficiency. Um, We've had a lot of bring your own thermostat programs and those have not just been limited to New York, but other states as well. And those like actually get customers engaged and a lot of customers really like those programs and it's they're cost effective. Um, Non-wireless alternatives have been written into a bunch of state proceedings. And some of these, they're not necessarily decoupled states. Some of these are fully integrated states where they're looking at non-wires alternatives. Um, I think there are going to be a couple of critical things. One is that we're going to need to make sure that there is appropriate digitalization because right now um, trying to connect the customer and the customer resource, I don't want to say load side, but the demand side and that resource side to the generation side is is really what needs to happen. And and in the UK, what they're trying to do um, until this is really fully operational and deployed, this flexibility market, is to to use thermal plants for inertia because they need that uh, with all the renewables. So you need some balancing. You probably need a bunch of transmission technologies too, like dynamic load control and asset management technologies so that you know uh, you know what's happening on that side of the grid too. So, so the reason it's not everywhere is our markets are vastly different, but I also think that a lot of the solutions are the same. New York in 2014 put together the Reforming the Energy Vision, which we gave a lot of time to. I know you were highly involved in you know, submitting comments during that process. And by now, we were supposed to see some kind of market, some kind of distributed energy market materialize, and we have not. Why is that? Well, I think it's been a lot harder for the utilities to realize it than they thought it would be. And um, that's for a bunch of different reasons. But I think one thing is sort of just a general, and this isn't just New York, it's a lot of other states too, a fear of aggregators and third parties, uh, innovators to come in and really manage programs and combine a portfolio of resources in a way that's going to help both the customer and the grid operate better. And I think there's a sense with utilities that they're the only ones who can do it. And I think um, that has been inhibiting in a lot of ways. So that's something that's going to need to evolve. Well, there's also, I mean, there really is a problem, like a serious problem between the way that they get rewarded on capital and the way that they meet the needs of the entire body, you know, of customers that they serve, right? I mean, ultimately, you know, for many of the transmission lines in this country, they're used less than 10% of the time, right? I mean, and it's okay, Regulators are like, well, it's fine, right? It's good to have all this extra capacity because when we need it, it's there, right? And this, like the smart wire stuff that we talked about in the UK that they've they've deployed at scale has raised that utilization to 50%, right? By forcing electrons to go the long way around, right? And so this technology exists and this was funded by ARPA-E. It's a San Francisco-based company that is, has no contracts in the United States because nobody in the United States is is incentivized to make things more efficient and better, right? And so now you're in a situation where 
for a long time, the utilities could get away with it. They could say, well, we might be willing to do this, but aggregators are not really dependable. And if you have rolling blackouts, that's on your head, regulator. So please let us keep fleecing the the ratepayers by doing all this stuff. And it's one of those things where, you know, if you're a regulator, you're like, do I really stand up to utility right now? Now, it's starting to get really hard for regulators because they're raising rates at double the rate of inflation every year, and they have for a long time. And AARP and a lot of other organizations are now saying enough is enough. Like, are you basically telling me that you're so incompetent that we have to keep paying these higher than inflation rate increases for our electricity rates? And, you know, governors are now starting to say we might lose our job over this issue, right? And so... You're starting to see a political moment where folks have to figure out how to get costs under control. And the best way to do that is to figure out how to get more out of what we already have paid for. And so now you see everyone focused on this, but unless they actually change the way the utilities get paid, this is not going to happen. And that the buzzword here is performance-based regulation. So the evidence does not bear out the the argument that uh, third party and aggregators don't show up. In fact, you know where demand response does not work is where there are no demand response programs. So you need these programs in place and you need to know that you're going to get paid as a customer to participate in order for it to work. But every single program that's out there that is designed correctly works really well and everybody benefits. That brings us to what happened in California during the recent blackouts. Jigger, you pointed us toward a Twitter thread from Cisco DeVries, who's the CEO of Ohm Connect, and he showed how Ohm Connect actually got penalized by uh, the California system operator um, when it was trying to deliver demand response services during the uh, period of high demand that contributed to the California rolling blackouts this summer. What happened, and what does that illustrate about the problems with the way these markets are structured. Yeah, I mean, well, this is why we rail against the, or at least I rail against the California system altogether, right? Is that it is super technical um, and it is very uh, prescribed by technocrats in every single case, right? They don't have open markets. And so, so we own several of these contracts, for instance, in the um, load reduction program that Southern California Edison had for their five most loaded substations. And the problem is they create a baseline, right? So they create a baseline. And even though we have real-time data, they stick to that baseline and they only pay you for beating that baseline. And so in the case of a super hot day, which is what Cisco was pointing out, the baseline was wrong because everyone had everything on. And so in fact, people were using record amounts of energy and they reduced energy substantially from where people were on you know the record amounts of energy but they re- they couldn't redefine the baseline and southern Ca- and i forgot which utility this was in this in their case but but they said look the contract says that we pay you as per the baseline you didn't reduce below the baseline you reduced from the peak down to the baseline but kind of not down to the baseline so in fact we're going to penalize you for not going below the baseline. So when Ohm Connect helped to save the grid that day, right? They actually had to pay a penalty to the state because their baseline was wrong, right? And this is something that would never happen in ERCOT's zone in the way that it's structured because in that zone it's a real-time thing. If they say, 
you know, reduced by 50 megawatt hours, you reduce by 50 megawatt hours, you get paid for each one of those megawatt hours you reduce by. But in California, they have this complicated thing where they're like, well, we're going to come out and test you once a year. And then we're going to give you a baseline and we're going to see how the baseline works. You have to reduce to the baseline. And we do this right now with the battery storage and evaporative cooling systems that we own. And it's, it's asinine because you think about like, what you need in this sector, you need a huge amount of capital to come into this sector to help deploy all of these assets. And, you know, the experience so far for the folks who've deployed the capital to date has been nothing but confusion. Yeah, Jigger, it is a mess in California. I've been talking a lot to the folks trying to deploy microgrids too. And it's just like you need somebody to come in a change agent just to reimagine the entire system out there. And I don't know how you do that. Uh, Because right now it does definitely favor uh, the utilities as the ones that are going to need to deploy things that they are not able to deploy and you have microgrid companies with a pipeline of projects and customers lined up that aren't able to participate at all. They've allocated $200 million for microgrids, uh, microgrid multi-property projects. And it's great that they're doing this for communities and hopefully those communities can work with the private sector to get some of those built. But the 30 microgrids that California is going to deploy are going to be up to the utilities to build and they can use diesel. It's just, um, it's one of those things where it is really hard for the private sector to do work out there because of the way the whole system functions. This has consequences everywhere. This has consequences in my backyard, for example, as well. Eversource, the utility here, is trying to build a massive substation in my backyard here in East Boston in a primarily Latinx community. They've been trying to build it for the last eight years. And by the way, they haven't had any translation services for anybody during the hearings, and they just started offering them. So they're trying to push through this substation that will serve mostly the airport, But they're relying on 2012 data about rising energy demand in East Boston. The demand is hopelessly out of date. And then the Union of Concerned Scientists came in and said, hey, actually, if if you're taking your assumptions about uh, load increases in the East Boston neighborhood, you could just put solar and storage on 700 houses around the neighborhood and cover your expected peak demand increase, and you wouldn't need to build the substation at all. And they've completely ignored the data. They're trying to ram it through. And if there was any way to value these services um, or the utility to procure those services, we'd probably be having a very different conversation. It's just a complete disaster. And it has very real-world consequences for how much it costs to build this infrastructure and for communities that have suffered the burden of industrial infrastructure. Now, I, you know, support building electrical infrastructure to support this stuff, but this is a substation that's going to be built in a flood zone, 100 yards away from storage tanks for jet fuel for the airport, across the street from a basketball court and a playground. It's just like this kind of decision-making that's absolutely crazy, and it has real-world consequences the way we value this stuff. It's not theoretical. Well, this is, but this is the system that we've created, right? And this is why my point is that Eversource is doing what's in their shareholders' best interest, which is basically pursuing a strategy that costs 100 times more than just putting solar on 700 households. And this is what Chris Clack and his team, you know, like modeled last week's episode, right? So, so this, I mean, everything basically is pointing to the same set of conclusions. The challenge is, is that, we have to figure out how Eversource is is penalized for proposing bad things. Because the way that this works right now is Eversource can say whatever they want. 
They go to the regulator, and the regulator says, great, here are the rules by which we can adjudicate your submission. There are other people that can become a party to that, you know, case, and they can, you know, put their own testimony and et cetera. And remember, there was a famous case in Maine um, around this where, you know, the Maine utility wanted to build a big uh, transmission line, and there was a local entrepreneur who proved that building solar, and this was using 2009 data, because this case was in 2009, was far cheaper, and it took him six years, but he finally won that case, right? And so so that's the way this is set up right now, is you basically have a whole bunch of well-meaning people who have to spend hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars to defend um, in these cases, and they get nothing for it, right? Because if they win, what do they get? 700 solar plus storage systems, right? They get the contract for 700 solar plus storage. Like, how much would you spend to get that contract? Nothing. So, like, they have no incentive to beat up Eversource. Yeah, I think we're going to be focused in the next few years on trying to figure out these flexibility metrics, these new markets, performance-based rates, and really trying to think about how do we create virtual power plants at the edge of the grid, allow consumers to benefit, and allow utilities to somehow also be able to make a living. So this is this is not the beginning. This is not the end of the conversation. This is the beginning of the conversation. For sure. But it does feel a little bit like Groundhog Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's turn finally to our favorite billionaire, perhaps the world's first trillionaire, uh, Elon Musk. Now that Donald Trump is off Twitter, one of the most closely watched Twitter accounts is Elon Musk's. He's the richest man in the world now. And in a tweet that got a lot of attention, Musk said he's going to donate $100 million toward a prize for the best carbon capture technology. We're going to get details here in a couple of weeks, I think. There's no shortage of compelling ideas for carbon capture and carbon removal. But the harsh truth is that so far, there's only 39 million tons per year of CCS in operation. And most of that is being used to push more oil out of the ground. The Tyndall Center for Climate Change Research calls it very, very limited progress in terms of CCS project development. Now, there's twice that much, about 75 million tons currently in development, but we're talking about very small numbers, millions of tons versus the gigatons of carbon removal we need. The difference between millions of tons and gigatons is a factor of a thousand. So Musk is, you know, still focused on solar and batteries, but he's turning his attention to carbon capture. What's happening here, Jigger? Is this about just simply Musk needing something to clean up his rocket-grade kerosene for SpaceX? Or is it about a broader worry or or desire to use CCS to clean up the economy? Well, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, I think that in the same way that Richard Branson uh, launched the first prize, you know, called the Virgin Earth Challenge back, I think, in 2010 or 2009, um, you know, part of that was he was concerned that he had to burn a bunch of jet fuel and um, wanted to find ways to, you know, to reduce his carbon footprint. I think Elon Musk has the same problem because he wants to continue to uh, put rockets into the air and, you know, eventually get one of them to get to Mars. And um, that's not going to, you know, be done with a big lithium ion battery. So I think that, you know, he has a similar motivation. I think the other thing, though, is now that we have the Biden administration saying that we're going to be at 100% decarbonization by 2035 of the electricity grid. And I do think we have a whole bunch of people who have now gotten on the electrify everything bandwagon. Um, we're in a place where we're having serious conversations like um, we had on the Interchange podcast this week um, around what do you do with all the other hard to uh, decarbonize sectors, right? And 
Um, and it's not an easy conversation. And I get the fact that there were a lot of environmentalists and others who in the past thought that conversations around CCS was just a way to placate Republican senators and that, you know, this was just part of the sausage making process and that clean coal was not something that was real and all these other things. Some of which is true. Clean coal is not a real thing. But some of it is not true, right? We actually do need functioning nuclear power. We actually do need CCS, right? Carbon sequestration and storage. We have a subsidy program called the 45Q program. And in the latest tax equity conversations, both Bank of America and JP Morgan Chase, as well as I think Goldman Sachs, have now committed some of their tax equity this year to CCS projects. And so I think you're going to see CCS projects go under construction this year with Occidental Petroleum leading the way, but then there's many others. And so so I think we have to acknowledge that while CCS may have been a political football around R&D uh, 10 years ago, that today it's actually something that, you know, the Department of Energy has been instructed by the Energy Act of 2020 to to look at, you know, six projects that it wants to fund through a billion dollar allocation of money, right? And you have uh, this 45Q program and other things. And so I think there's a level of seriousness now around what is CCS, who's working on it, what are the likely scenarios that we should be pursuing, right? What, Where should we be deploying? Where should we, we be researching? And there's a lot of smart people at the Columbia University Center, Julio Friedman and others, that are trying to parse this out for Microsoft, who's, who's committed to buying a lot of these credits, et cetera. So there's a lot of very serious players in the ecosystem now, where, you know, maybe before it was just a political talking point, but I think it's real now. Yeah, and I think there's a difference between sort of this patient, long-term, you know, Bill Gates-type funding, sort of the second half of the 2000s, what are those big solutions we have to come up with? That doesn't, Elon Musk doesn't strike me as the patient type. So I also think that there are very specific sector-specific solutions that we can deploy right now um, that make a ton of sense. I, I worked for a while with Carbon Cure, which was the company that um, injects CO2 waste into cement, which is everywhere. So you talk about infrastructure. We If we can put it into infrastructure and it'll never escape, that's awesome. Or those projects where you know biomass is burned everywhere. And if you can take the byproduct of that as biochar and put that back into the soil and regenerate the soil, that's another option that's you know solving something very local with things that are cost-effective can address a specific sector, as Jigger says. Does Elon Musk offering $100 million do anything, Jigger? I mean, is it... No. Is it something that could help a company? I mean, with a potentially game-changing technology? No, but I think as as we learned with a lot of people who have large social media followings, right? I mean, that, that you know, whether he's tweeting about GameStop and their stock or whether you're tweeting about, you know, <laughs> CCS, like the value is in the the more broad um, uh, culture accepting the conversation, right? The thing that Elon Musk has done for our industry is that he gets covered by People Magazine, right? Like, so while our podcast is, you know, the most listened to podcast in our space, which is fantastic, we're not, you know, having 2 million listens per week yet. Um, and You didn't know People Magazine's doing a profile on us? <laughs> <laughs> and so Elon Musk does that for us, which I think is hugely valuable. I think the fact that when he talks about things, it goes into, you know, the ears of all the politicians and all the mayors and all the people and all these other people who may or may not be in the weeds of what we talk about day to day. 
is critical. But I, I do think it's important for us to highlight that there is some seriousness here, right? That CCUS, which is utilization, isn't a real thing, right? We don't want EOR. The only place it's a real thing is in carbon in cement, right? Which I think, you know, Catherine highlighted, and that's a real thing, and I think that's awesome. The other CCS stuff that we're talking about is actually injecting it into places that are geologically stable, like ADM has and like the state of Wyoming is doing and other folks they're doing there. Those are the 45Q credit projects that are moving forward now. And then you have direct air capture, which I, for one, never think is going to become real because there's a, a huge amount of energy required to do direct air capture. That being said, there are a lot of smart people that I know and respect that are working on it. And that's probably where you're going to see a lot of this $100 million go. I mean, for those people who've been following this, Shopify and um, and some other uh, tech companies have also been buying the credits from direct air capture projects because they believe that we need to do direct air capture, which is awesome. I'd love to see the costs of that coming down. But I do think that there is a general acknowledgement today that we are not going to stave off the worst impacts of climate change without a CCS strategy. And a trillion trees, while interesting, is probably not a CCS strategy. I want to push back a little bit, Jigger, because $100 million is a big number, and it feels very consequential for a company developing a tech that gets needs to get to the next level of scale. Yeah, I'm not saying that $100 million is not an important number. It is not it is not a substantial number, right? I mean, the vast majority of these projects are billion-dollar projects, right? So let's let's start there. But second of all, I think that, you know, we've had like an X Prize, for instance, for carbon capture, which I think Tri-State had funded and a few other folks. But ultimately, like, they didn't get as much press for it as Elon Musk because his Twitter feed has a lot more followers, right? And so so that, I think, is, is the part that's most interesting. There are a lot of serious people working on CCS right now. There are a lot of serious models from Jesse Jenkins to to Chris Clack, to other people who have CCS as part of their modeling now, right? So that's a big change from 10 years ago. But the biggest thing that this does is bring um, CCS into the broader conversation as a serious topic, as opposed to where it's been, which is derided by a lot of parts of um, the country, which frankly, the Biden administration listens to. Well, as of this recording, we don't have details on what that prize will look like, but we should have we should have some more information soon. More to come on CCS. This is a topic that I feel like will start to dominate a lot of our conversations going forward. Let's go to the, our free electrons or our free carbon molecule. <laughs> Catherine, what do you got? Yeah, so instead of heading to Davos, Switzerland this week, they had the Davos Dialogues put on by the World Economic Forum, and I moderated a panel that was titled Accelerating a Real Economy-Led Recovery. And it was really interesting because the speakers that I were on my panel were from uh, Saudi Arabia, were from Erlikon, Eurasian Resource Group, and Limak Holding in Turkey. And these are big infrastructure and mining and manufacturing companies that are really not in the space that I work in. But Every one of them talked about moving toward a low carbon economy and what that would mean for sustainable recovery. And the other piece that all of them talked about was making sure that it was inclusive and that brought along communities that are in transition and that and that address the wealth increasing wealth gap. So I thought that was super interesting to talk to all of these people 
who who are operating globally as massive companies that are thinking along the same lines as the energy companies that we work with. And it pointed out a report that I saw this week also from Rocky Mountain Institute called How Rural America is Reaping Economic Development Benefits from the Growth of Renewables. And this is like much more on a local level where you know 99% of offshore wind is in rural communities. And there's an expectation there will be $60 billion of revenues by 2030 from wind and solar in, in rural communities, which tops um, – the three top ag commodities of corn, soy, and beef. So it's huge in rural communities. And I think um, everybody in the world is thinking about this. Uh, but this report is interesting to take a look at from the U.S. perspective. Jigger, what's your free electron? I have two this week, as I'm apt to do sometimes. And one is, um, I just wanted to highlight Wahela Johns, who um, is taking over the I think it's a sort of a loan guarantee program really within DOE for about $2 billion on Native American lands. It's been around for a long time and never really been used. But for those folks who don't know Wahela, she was uh, critical in, uh, you know, the Navajo coal station shutdown, as well as building uh, solar on Navajo land, right? And so um, to me, like, I just think that when we think about the appointments that came into the Biden administration, I'm quite surprised at how many practitioners they brought into uh, the appointments process. And I think it's one of those things that just gets lost in the shuffle because people are like, oh, there's all these people who just got appointed. That's great. But but I think what's different here is they're not really experts in regulation. They're experts in um, trying to get this money out the door. And I just think that's uh, super critical to highlight. Um, we did a whole one... episode on Wahela's journey, actually, for a matter of degrees. Uh, our special correspondent, Julian Brave Noisecat, profiled her. So if you actually want to learn more about her journey fighting Peabody Coal and starting a company to deploy solar in the Navajo Nation, check out that episode. Um, it's such a great, it's a such such great episode. And I'm just in awe of people who, who take on those kinds of <laughs> efforts. It's, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. And then the other one is I wanted to highlight um, a little bit of log rolling. Generate Capital led a unique financing with Intersect Power uh, with our friends at Carval Investors. Uh, and so for those folks who don't know Intersect, they're one of the largest um, uh, solar developers in the United States. And the, the thing I wanted to highlight about it is that the financing is unique because it allows uh, Intersect to hold ownership of these projects in the same way that Michael Polsky does um, over at Invenergy. And I think that you're going to start to see a lot more of this happening, whereas in the past, a lot of the developers were forced to sell their power plants to you know, NextEra or uh, Warren Buffett's MidAmerican or others. And I think what you're going to see is this new crop of clean energy industrialists who, you know, are going to retain control. And what that allows you to do is now you actually get folks like Michael Polsky has done um, that can actually fund a lot of things like, uh, you know, a venture capital fund that Amy Francetic runs or or some of these other types of initiatives in the same way that you used to see in the oil and gas and coal industries with the Rockefellers and others, you're starting to see that come about in the clean energy sector, which I think is actually going to make the the power balance uh, different in the in the debates going forward. I want to highlight some research on social media disinformation. After the president got kicked off of Twitter 
a research group called Zignal Labs showed that election fraud misinformation dropped 73% on Twitter. And I don't know about you, but does it feel like Twitter is a different place after the president got kicked off? Doesn't it feel just a little bit more, a little bit less hostile, a little bit less hair on fire? Do either of you feel that way? I never followed the president, but I noticed on the like on the column to the side that it's much more about like the bachelor and much less about what (laughs) Trump said, which I really appreciate. I'll take the bachelor all day long. Yeah, I think what's shocking, honestly, is how fast deplatforming the president worked. Right. It just worked so fast. And why didn't we do this two years earlier? Jack Dorsey has been talking for years about how to fix the platform. And they, they Facebook and Twitter said that they could never take the president off their platforms or how difficult it would be. And like turns out they could just they could they did it. And, and it was very easy for them to do it. And the, a lot of the troubles on their platforms dropped overnight. Now, I don't want to oversimplify it because I think there's these companies have turned into public squares, even though they're p- private companies. And we have it's a very nuanced discussion about how you moderate public figures. With that said, I have watched Jack Dorsey's apology tour for the last two years talking about how they need to make fixes to the platform to control misinformation, particularly after uh, you know the, the Russians set up all these fake accounts for the 2016 election to cause um, disarray in the political system. They, they, they haven't fixed the problem. And this has been playing out in the climate space as well. E&E News had a story about a new paper that was published in the journal Climate Policy. And they show that a couple of years ago, they analyzed all this data about the climate conversation happening on the platform. There were millions of tweets sent out by bots that were uh, promoting climate denial, climate confusion. And they found disinformation bots accounted for a quarter of all the tweets related to climate change during this period they measured. It's a rampant problem on a place like Twitter. And it's more infuriating because when I go on Twitter to try to pay to promote a podcast of ours, for example, to a wider audience and do some marketing, I immediately get shut down because talking about climate change as a paid campaign is supposedly political speech. Drives me absolutely bananas. No, I don't disagree, Stephen. I just, I do think that we should caution the differences between these two things, right? One person is actually trying to sow hate and division in ways that have been done for 2,000 years, right? Like tribalism is a tried and true way to like get everyone riled up and make things us versus them. Another one is sowing disinformation, which I think we're never going to be able to solve completely, right? I mean, API funds energy citizens, which is currently basically railing against, you know, the Biden climate agenda um, and, you know, there's actually some real people there, too, that are spreading lies um, on purpose because their jobs depend on it. Right. And so, I, you know, my sense is, is that that kind of stuff is going to be hard for Twitter and Facebook to remove because they love they love the passion and action that helps them sell more ads. Um, but I just think they have to steer clear of, you know, ruining our democracy. Mm. Well, that's going to do it for the show. Follow us on Twitter. <laughs> uh and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and follow our Etsy page where we'll, we will knit you some Energy Gang mittens. Uh, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you being with us. We're a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. If you want to uh, support the show, do actually give us a shout out on Twitter. It's very helpful. And um, 
send a link to a friend or colleague and give us a rating and review wherever you get your shows. Apple Podcasts is the best place to do that. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. We will talk to you soon. 